0: John chapter 9, we're going to read from verse 8 to the end of the chapter. John 9, verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar, this is the man who was born blind and then healed, were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us. So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him, heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for allowing us to be here and thank you for your truth that sets us free. Thank you for your, your word. Thank you for your works. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, and what he reveals to us about you. Lord, I just ask that you would take this time that we have now to hear from the scriptures, and I pray, Lord, that you would use it, work in our hearts, open our understanding, strengthen our hearts, encourage us in the truth, And bring honor to your name, Lord. Do a work in my heart. Do a work in everyone's heart here, Lord, as we reflect and listen to Jesus. And Father, we lay this before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the healing of the man who was born blind. And we recognized that this healing was included in the Gospel of John by the Apostle John because it's a sign that illustrates who jesus is this healing is not just some representative healing that john wanted to include to say hey did you know that jesus healed people he's powerful he could do that but this sign was included to show us that jesus is the light of the world he's the one who brings light to those who are in darkness and last week we talked about how this man who was born blind He represents all men, right? This man who is born blind represents us all because every single person who's born into this world is born blind to the reality of God, blind to the reality of themselves, and blind uh, to the reality of salvation. What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? And that's why every single one of us needs to be taught and instructed. Our eyes need to be opened. And if they're not, then we're just going to remain in darkness. If you leave a person alone without any truth and revelation, they're just going to remain in darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world. He's the one who brings us the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, and the truth about salvation. And whoever believes in him and receives his revelation that he taught, they're no longer blind. They're now in the light and they can see. Jesus teaches us about God, ourselves, and about salvation. And I was just reflecting on this. We need to reflect on this every day, all the time. That Jesus reveals to us that before God, we are all unrighteous. Amen? Amen. I mean, did you realize that this week afresh? That if, you, if God were to judge you on the basis of your behavior, and he was to hold you up to his standard, did you realize this week afresh that you'd fall short of that, right? And Jesus hammers that home. No, it's not about trying. It's not about doing your best. God's standard is love, perfect love for God and neighbor, and you fail at that. If you get what you deserve, you're going to go to hell. That's the righteousness of God, and that's your unrighteousness in the light of the righteousness of God. But Jesus also shows us the way of salvation, that he came into the world to die on the cross for our sins. We proclaim it afresh. We need to hear it again, don't we? I need to hear it again right now this morning, that Jesus came to die for my sins. And the amazing thing about the truth that Jesus reveals is not just that through the death of Christ, I get my sins forgiven, my slate wiped clean, and I get a second chance at, going, at doing this thing, right? But it's so much more marvelous than that. Through the death of Christ, Jesus took my place, and if I believe in him, God actually doesn't merely forgive me of all my sins, but he actually counts me as being dead, That is, I'm no longer even under the law anymore. I'm completely wiped out and gone, and through faith in the resurrection, I'm a brand new person, not even under law, just under grace, perpetually righteous because of Jesus, not because of my own works. That is what Jesus did for us. Isn't that amazing? I don't know about you, but that is really good news. And until a person sees this, they're blind to the reality of God, they're blind to the reality of themselves, and they're blind to the reality of salvation. Jesus is the light of the world, and this miracle is about showing us he's the one who shows us the truth. Now this morning, as we look on in this chapter, we turn our attention to what John proceeds to show us. And John proceeds to show us the responses of various people to this sign. So Jesus performs the sign, and then we get to see the aftermath. How did people respond to this sign? John gives us four different responses to this miracle. First of all, he shows us the responses of this man's neighbors, the responses of the Pharisees or the religious leaders, the response of his parents, and last but not least, John shows us the response of the man itself. What happened to this man who experienced the miracle itself? And I, I believe, brothers and sisters, that these four responses that John shows us represent different ways people continue to react to the work of God. So this isn't just a historical lesson of something that happened a long time ago one day. But the way people responded to the work of God will teach us about how they continually respond. In fact, after John finishes showing us the responses, we see that Jesus makes a major statement at the end of the chapter about his purpose, one of the purposes of his coming. And look at at verse 39 with me. Jesus says that one of the purposes of his coming was judgment, was to judge. Now, someone might object and say one of the purposes of jesus's coming was to judge i thought his purpose was to save and doesn't he say in john chapter 3 verse 17 that god did not send his son into the world to judge the world or to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved and that's absolutely true when jesus came into the world he didn't come to punish the ungodly he came to save us he came to save the ungodly but John 3.19 just two verses later says that this is the condemnation that the light comes into the world to save but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil and they didn't come to the light. They didn't receive and believe the light. And for that reason they're condemned. He didn't come to punish them but even his coming to save produces condemnation in those who reject his truth and his salvation. The um, the, the uh, scholar F.F. F. Bruce comments on this judgment. He says, Jesus is not saying here that he has come to execute judgment. Rather, his presence and activity in the world themselves constitute a judgment as they compel men and women to declare themselves for or against him, as they range themselves on the one side or the other. Those who range themselves against him are judged already, not because he has passed judgment on them, but because they have passed it upon themselves. So it's, a very, it's important that we realize while Jesus came to save that to reject his salvation is to bring judgment and to pass judgment on yourself. How we respond, friends, to the works of God and ultimately to Jesus, who is the supreme work of God, reveals who we really are do you believe that how we respond to jesus reveals who a person is and how we respond to him will either lead us to the knowledge of the truth and bring us into the light or it will harden us in our rebellion against god and plunge us deeper into darkness so it's a very sober thing that jesus came to bring light into the world it's joyful we rejoice that he did but it's a sober thing as well Uh, for those who do not respond to it. And we'll say more about that at the end. I've divided this sermon into two sections. First, we're going to look at the four responses that are recorded here. And we're going to see what they teach us about the processes of unbelief and faith. That is, they're going to teach us something about how unbelief and faith work. So when someone doesn't believe in Jesus, what we're going to see here reveals The thinking process, or what's kind of going on behind the scenes in a person that doesn't believe. But also in the person that does believe, we're going to see, how does that work? Why does does this man believe and the others don't? And we'll, we'll see something of the process there in these four responses. And then we'll just close by considering, again, the judgment that the revelation of Christ affects in the world. So first, the four responses. Now, immediately following the healing of the man, John records the reaction of the man's neighbors. Now, the neighbors are those people who lived among this man and they knew him, they were very familiar with him. They're not strangers to this man and he's not a stranger to them. So how do they react to this this man receiving his sight? Well, obviously his neighbors represent a large group of people and so there's many different people here that are in different places in their life and many different characters. So it shouldn't surprise us that when the neighbors react to this miracle, we see in the text a mixed reaction. They don't all react in the exact same way. At first, of course, they're surprised to see the man seeing. They're shocked, and they ask the question in verse 8, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? They're so surprised, they have to ask that question. They they. They're pretty sure it's the man, but they have to ask because it's just so shocking. And there's two different answers that are given to this question. Some say, this is him. And others say, no, it's someone who's like him. Now, happily, the man was there to insist that it was him. His presence among his neighbors and his repeated testimony that it was him leaves them no choice but to recognize that it was him. And naturally, they want to know what happened, and they want to know where Jesus is, and he doesn't know where Jesus is. I'd like for a moment, though, to reflect upon one group of people in that group of neighbors, the group that argued that it was not him. I want to reflect on them for just a moment. Isn't it interesting that there were some people that said, no, It's like him, but it's not him. Because I think reflecting on this group of people will give us a very important insight into one of the thinking processes of unbelief, how unbelief works, why people don't believe in God or in Jesus or in the Bible. And there's a a lesson here. They say it is like him. They're, They're looking at the man, right? They've seen him for a long time. They're looking at this man they're hearing all these other people around them ask the question, is this the guy? And they're hearing all these other people saying, yes, it is the guy. But despite the fact that with their own eyes they're looking at him, and despite the fact a whole bunch of other people are saying it is the man, yet they still say, no, it's not the man. And I just want to ref- you know, ask you this morning, why do you think they didn't think it was the man? Did he really look that different? It was him after all, right? It really was the man. And there was lots of evidence pointing to the fact that it was the man. He looked the same and everyone else seemed to be recognizing him. So why did they say that? It's one that looks like him. And friends, I I believe that this phenomenon that we see here in verse 9 can be explained only by that attitude or disposition of the heart that we could call unhealthy skepticism about the supernatural. Can you think of any other reason why they would say, no, it's not him, it's somebody that looks like him, other than an unhealthy skepticism about things like that happening. Now, to be sure, there's such a thing as healthy skepticism. We're not supposed to just believe anything or any report. We should require good grounds in order to believe something. But when the grounds to believe something are good, when there's strong evidence that point to something, and yet a person still doubts, even though the evidence points in that direction, and yet a person still doubts, that's when we have... A disposition or a heart attitude of unhealthy skepticism unhealthy skepticism says i know it looks like him i know it sounds like him i know it acts like him but it can't be him it can't be him it's got to be someone who just looks like him and why is that because they reveal that they have this preconceived idea or presupposition that because what you're telling me that I need to believe is a miracle or some supernatural thing that this man who was born blind has been healed, because you're saying it's a miracle, I do not, and therefore I cannot believe that can happen. It's outside the range of what is possible. Have you ever met anybody like that, right? Who has an unhealthy skepticism in the supernatural? All the evidence can point to a miracle, and yet they say it can't be. And instead they'll opt for an absurd natural explanation simply because it's a natural explanation. It's got to be someone who is is doppelganger, right? We're surrounded by the very same thing today, I believe. Here's just an example. The idea, um, Darwin's idea of evolution I think is a good example of this unhealthy skepticism in the supernatural. So as a natural explanation of uh, everything that we see in in the universe and the biodiversity and animal life and plant life and even our own bodies, as a natural explanation of how all of this came to be, I believe, friends, that it's conspicuously outlandish and absurd. To say that you and I and all this amazing, elegant, and ingenious design, just happened by a random process of mutation and natural selection, that that's how we can explain our own existence and the existence of all the biodiversity. To say that that's how it is, it really strikes me as just on the surface outlandish and absurd. And I hope it does for you as well. And the Bible would tell you that it does as well. The Bible teaches us that God is the one who created this world as it looks, and that that nature testifies of his design, his power, and his wisdom day by day. But because Darwin's idea of evolution is the only natural explanation that this secular world has for the origin of things, it therefore is accepted as being wise and respectable, and yeah, this is a good explanation for the world, only because it's the only natural explanation that people have. And so I think we can see the same kind of thing. I know it, it's, it, it, it seems absurd, but it's the only one we're going to go with because it can't be from God. We won't accept that conclusion. Have you ever talked about someone about the resurrection of Jesus and you find they quickly dismiss the idea that Jesus rose from the dead? No, dead men can't rise from the dead. It was probably stolen by the disciples, right? Even though if they were to think about it, as many people have thought about it uh, and come to the conclusion that Jesus must have risen from the dead, the evidence points in that direction. And if you think about it, any natural explanation of the resurrection of Jesus is, it strikes us as outlandish. And yet simply because it's a natural explanation, people will opt for that one rather than admit Jesus rose from the dead because of an unhealthy skepticism in the supernatural so it's the same thing we see in this text now i think we all struggle with this to a degree because supernatural things are not what we're used to right so if you get a supernatural report we, i think our first reaction is no i don't think so there maybe there's a natural explanation for that but brothers and sisters if the evidence points in the direction of a miracle of god then it is incumbent upon us to believe do you believe that If the evidence points that it was a miracle, then we can't say, I know the evidence points there. I know it would be absurd, some other hypothesis, but I can't believe it's a miracle. That is an unhealthy heart attitude. Acts chapter 26, verse 8 says, Paul tells us, Why should it be thought incredible that God can raise the dead? And Augustine said long ago, Why do you marvel? It is God. God can do miracles. To not believe betrays more than a normal skepticism but in fact a hostility to god do you believe that calvin says impiety is ingenious in obscuring the works of god now thankfully unhealthy skepticism can be cured god can soften our hearts and remove that hostility to accepting the truth of his work we should pray that God would deliver our own hearts from that evil and pray that he would deliver others from that evil as well. So the response of the neighbors is mixed, but I just wanted to focus on that response. No, it can't be him. It's got to be someone like him. This helps us understand how unbelief works, why people don't believe, one of the reasons. So let's look at the response of the Pharisees and the leaders now. John tells us um, next about them. The Pharisees are extremely religious and extremely zealous for their religion, and they have a thoroughgoing belief in the supernatural. They're not going to trip up about that. They know God can do miracles. But what we see here in our passage is that they do trip up about something, and it's not this idea that the man was born blind. They're not going to say, no, it was someone like him. It couldn't have happened. What do they trip up over here? Well, they trip up over the fact that the miracle was performed on the Sabbath. So look with me at verse 14. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. He just had to do it on the Sabbath, right? And in verse 15, we see that because the miracle occurred on the Sabbath, the Pharisees were inquiring carefully as to how Jesus healed him. Now, Jesus had healed people on the Sabbath before in the past, and in the past, he had already clashed with the Pharisees over this. But as far as we know, this was the first time Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath by making clay. I was looking through the rest of the Gospels, and Jesus heals people on the Sabbath, but often what he does is he just says, stretch forth your hand, or he just puts his hand on somebody, and and he says, "Be," be healed, or rise up and walk. And they didn't like him healing on the sabbath anyway they thought you know you shouldn't be healing on the sabbath just wait a day and then do it and it's, everything will be fine but i think this is the first time that as far as we know he doesn't just say be healed or touch somebody but he actually makes clay and puts it on the guy's eyes and says go wash and so that creates extra problems and in verse 16 i think you can hear their emotion when they hear he made clay, put it on my eyes, told me to wash, and now I can see. And you can just see some of the Pharisees hearing this report. They say, this man is not from God, right? Because he does not keep the Sabbath. But John actually records there's a, mic, a mixture of response among the Pharisees even, and there's a division among them. Some have a hard time denying that if such a notable miracle was done and it was a notable miracle the opening of the eyes of a man born blind you see this they're saying how could this man not be from god if he's done such a miracle as this but the others are not so yielding now it's common for christians to scold these unyielding pharisees isn't it for overlooking the major thing that he healed a man who was born blind. What an awesome, powerful miracle. What a beautiful healing. And we scold the Pharisees. What are you, crazy? Are you missing this? You know, just look at your, look what you're missing the major thing for the minor thing. You're looking at him violating the Sabbath because he made a little, you know, made a little clay. Are you missing the main thing that he did? He opened a man's eyes, for goodness sakes. And we often scold them for that. And while I grant that the Pharisees, in fact, they are the enemies of the gospel, it's important to understand our opponents and to affirm them in whatever they may see that's right, even if they see things that are also wrong. And I think that the Pharisees here are picking up on something that is right. And we should notice this. The Pharisees who are opposing Jesus are appealing to a principle in the Law of Moses And I'd like us to turn together to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13. And the first five verses gives us a very important principle that's still relevant and in effect and we need to consider it, and it's relevant to our case here in, the God, in John 9. So those who are opposing Jesus for healing on the Sabbath are appealing to this principle. And let's just read these first five verses together. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. He's trying to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from among you. And I'd like to just make this point that Christians, brothers and sisters, it, it, it actually isn't enough to merely point to the miracles of Jesus and say, see, that just proves Jesus is of God and he's a prophet. I don't believe it is. We have to also show people, and the Jews in particular who reject Jesus, that Jesus is not leading people astray from the true knowledge of God and from the law of Moses. Do you you believe that's true? And if we witness to a Jewish person, and all we say is, well, he did all these miracles, you got to believe them, Right? Even if you said he rose from the dead. Now, that's a powerful thing. But in their mind, they're thinking, you know, I grant, maybe he did those things. But it could be from sorcery, right? If he leads us away from the true knowledge of God, this is a test. In fact, I've even heard the Jewish people say that because Jesus did so many miracles, that he's the ultimate test for the Jewish people. Basically, he's the chief test. That it's so deceptive that to believe in him, you have to be loyal and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it's not enough just simply to point to these miracles and say, look, he healed a man who was born blind. But is he violating the Sabbath? Is he dishonoring the law of God? And if we go back to John chapter 9, and... Uh, in John chapter 9, verse 28, this is how the Pharisees are thinking. We are disciples of Moses, and to follow Jesus is to dishonor Moses. To follow Jesus is to turn our back on the law that God gave through Moses. And this is how the Pharisees are thinking. Now this doesn't mean that miracles are insignificant, Or they have no purpose in our our faith. God uses miracles to get our attention, to show us that something supernatural and beyond the natural is at work, and to show us that even He is at work. But we have to have some sort of a test to understand if this miracle is really from God or whether it's not. And the test is, brothers and sisters, does the miracle point us, lead us, guide us into the true knowledge of God and to the true worship of God as He has revealed Himself to us? Or does it guide us and lead us away from God? That's the test. Now, the New Testament also tells us that there's many false prophets, false Christs that will do signs and wonders, and we need to not be deceived by those signs and wonders as well. I mean, what would you do if, if a Mormon missionary went into the Logan Regional Hospital, laid his hands on every person in that hospital, and they were all healed? Would you conclude that Mormonism is true? What if an angel from heaven came to you one night and said, I'm here to give you a revelation from God. I'm an angel from heaven. And the revelation from God is, you're making a mistake with this whole grace idea. And you need to turn from that and obey the law in order to be saved. What what are you going to do? So the question is, the test is, does the sign, does the wonder lead us into the true knowledge of God or does it not? That's the question that the Pharisees have on their, on their mind as they're opposing Jesus and his miracle. Is Jesus doing that? Is he in fact violating the Sabbath and the word of God? So I'd like to suggest that the Pharisees are correct in their principle that a mere miracle doesn't automatically prove that a person is from God. No matter how great the miracle may be but that they're incorrect in thinking that Jesus is leading them astray and they're incorrect in thinking that Jesus is violating the Sabbath and they're incorrect in thinking that Jesus is irreconcilable or hostile to Moses and and to the law of Moses. That's where they're wrong in their understanding. Now two things can be said in defense of Jesus' action by healing people on the Sabbath and Jesus himself says this on different occasions, and they actually are sufficient in refuting this idea that he's violating or breaking the Sabbath. Number one, as we saw in John chapter 5, Jesus, because he is God, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And as the Father is always working, and Jesus is equal with the Father, so the Son also is able to always work, even on the Sabbath. That's one answer Jesus gives. He says, you guys don't understand who I am. If you understand That I am the Son of God, the Word of God, the incarnate Word of God. I came from the Father. He's always working. I'm always working. You honor Him. You need to honor me. I am, before Abraham, I am God. That's one thing that they don't recognize and don't realize. But the other thing that can be said, if that one doesn't, uh, you know, if people don't catch on to that one, and this is something else Jesus says, is that the Pharisees are actually hypocrites because they themselves allow work to be done on the Sabbath. Let me give two examples, and Jesus gives these two examples. They allow circumcision to be done on the Sabbath, correct? So the law of Moses requires on the eighth day that a, a boy is to be circumcised, and if it, falls, if it happens to fall on the Sabbath, then they say, you know what, we've got a conflict of interest here, we've got a conflict of commandments, no work, but we've got to do it on the eighth day. Well, this commandment takes precedence over that commandment. And so we will accomplish a work, and we will circumcise the boy on the eighth day. Jesus points that out. You guys do it. You're not violating the Sabbath. Second of all, if your animal was to fall into a well, wouldn't you pull your animal up out of the well or out of the pit on the Sabbath day? You would. Why? Because, again there's a conflict of commandments here. On the one hand, do no work on the Sabbath, but on the other hand, you're, according to the law, you're to treat your animals well. You're to treat your neighbor well. You're to love your neighbor and do good. And Jesus says, is it, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not, right? And so Jesus is simply saying, look, I'm doing good on the Sabbath. I'm healing a man who's been born blind. This isn't a violation because the law also tells us to what Jesus is not advocating is that people can go about the daily grind of working, you know. Oh, just forget about the Sabbath. You work six days a week, just work seven days a week. It's no big deal. Go pick up sticks, go, go to work. Go, you know, That's not what he's saying to the Jews. He's not, that would be a violation of the Sabbath, just to go work like normal. But within reason, it is lawful and even obligatory to do good on the Sabbath, and that is all that Jesus is doing. Does that make sense? So they're incorrect in saying he is violating the Sabbath. So why do the Pharisees not believe in him? What's the working or the process of unbelief here? It's not because they're skeptical of the supernatural. It's because they have a zeal for God that's not according to knowledge. It's because they wrongfully think Jesus is violating the Sabbath when he's not. And it's because they wrongfully understand Moses and his law if they really knew moses jesus tells us and we as the christian church proclaim this again if you really understood the law if you really understood god's word through moses then you would believe in jesus true it's their false understanding of moses that's the problem their zeal for god without knowledge and the reality is is underneath that is actually hostility to christ and hostility to god because if you really believe moses that would mean you're a lawbreaker right if you really believe moses that would mean you're in big trouble that would mean what jesus is saying is true and we don't want to believe what jesus is saying is true we hate that light we hate that truth we hate admitting that all our righteousness is our filthy rags we hate admitting that our obedience is Count for nothing we hate the idea of grace we hate the idea of these other sinners these harlots these tax collectors entering the kingdom of god before us because there's an hostility to the glory of god the honor of god and the, and to humble yourself before god and admit you're a sinner and throw yourself on grace this is really just their pretext to justify their unbelief oh we're not going to believe in him he's a sabbath breaker you can see how people disbelieve today in a similar way. Zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The third response is the parents, and we can be brief about them. They're brought in by the Pharisees to verify the story. I think the Pharisees were hoping to solve the dilemma by perhaps proving it all to be a fraud. The parents are obviously ecstatic that their son is healed, and we can just imagine how much joy they'd have in their heart as they're standing before the Pharisees looking at one another. And the son is looking at the parents for the very first time. But when the parents are asked about how the son was healed, what is their response? They don't want to get entangled with Jesus. They know that anyone who believes in Jesus is going to be kicked out of the synagogue and, and that was a very big deal in that community in that religious community. We can understand, I think, something of that here in Utah. And the parents don't want to even go near that because they're afraid, John tells us, of entangling themselves with Jesus and losing their standing and their status in the community. And so here we see another reason people don't believe, another process of unbelief. We've looked at... Uh, just an unhealthy skepticism of the supernatural. We've looked at um, uh, misunderstanding the law, having a zeal for God without knowledge. But here we see another reason people don't believe in Jesus is because of fear. They love their reputation. They love their status. They love the comfort, the comfort of their life in the community. They don't want that to be troubled. And it's a tragic fact, friends. Friends that many people have forfeited the eternal pleasures of the kingdom of god for these lesser pleasures and these temporal pleasures of earth many people have forfeited salvation just because of fear didn't jesus say that if you're going to believe in me they're going to hate you they're going to persecute you're you going to be cast out but you've got to count the cost and you need to believe that it's worth it right it's worth losing your own life even to gain your soul. And what does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? Martin Luther, who experienced persecution himself, said, he who will have for his master and king, Jesus Christ, the son of the Virgin, who took upon himself our flesh and blood, will have the devil for his enemy. And so we need to understand that, recognize that, Count the cost, see the worth of it, brace ourselves, and not be afraid to believe in him, despite whatever we might lose. Here's one of the reasons why people don't believe. They don't do that. And lastly, we have the response of the man himself. So we've seen there's a mixture of responses here, and I've focused primarily on negative responses, but now we can look at a positive response to this miracle, Here's a man that the miracle actually led into belief in Jesus. So obviously he was overjoyed that he could see. Did you notice, brothers and sisters, in this text as we were reading it, that there's a progression and an increase of understanding that this man has? Did you notice that? That he grows throughout the story in his conviction, and his understanding of who Jesus is. He grows, as we see in verse 11, he says, "'The man they called Jesus, he put clay on my eyes, told me to wash.'" In verse 17, they ask him, What do you think about this man? He says, He's a prophet. Now, it's interesting he says he's a prophet because a little bit later in verse 24, he says, I don't, or 25, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. So when he says he's a prophet, my guess here is that he understands he's a teacher. I'm not sure how much of his teaching he really grasps, but he's saying, Look, he's like Elijah. He's like Elisha. He put mud on my eyes and I'm healed. I think he's falls into that category somehow. It's ironic in verse 24, the Pharisees tell him to give glory to God, which is a Hebrew idiom or expression that actually means tell the truth before God. Give glory to God means God knows the truth. You're you're not confessing the truth. God knows the truth. Honor God, honor the fact that he knows and tell the truth. It's kind of similar to in our own society. Do you swear before God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? He'll so help you, God. It's similar to that. Give glory to God. Honor him and the fact that he knows the truth and tell the truth. And what's ironic about that is that it sounds like they care about truth, doesn't it? It sounds like these Pharisees care about truth. They're enjoining this man to tell the truth. But the reality is, is they're the ones who are not giving glory to God because they're the ones who are hiding in darkness and will not confess the truth about their own hearts and about Jesus. It's amazing that they say they know Jesus is a sinner. How do they know he's a sinner? On what grounds do they know he's a wicked man? Because he put clay on a man's eyes on the Sabbath, right? He did good on the Sabbath. Their perverted understanding of that Uh, Makes them think he's a wicked man. Isn't that amazing? But what about everything else Jesus has said? Honoring the law of God as perfection for what it is. Showing compassion to the sinners. Fulfilling prophecy. What about all of his wondrous works of healing that he has done? Exorcisms. What about all the things he hasn't done? I mean, Jesus was sinless. Surely they noticed the spotlessness of his character, you know? But here they're so um, just forward to say, we know he's a sinner. Why? They ask the man again in verse 26, tell us again what happened. And the man at this point, is a rem- it, he really shows how, um, what a remarkable man he is. Because the, that, that's a community that feared the Pharisees. You know, these guys were the religious, the righteous people. You're to copy them, you're to honor them. They're appointed by God as your authorities. But from verse 26 on, this man takes a big step forward in his understanding. It's like he has an aha moment as he's dealing with these people. Because he detects, I think, in their interrogation, that they're not being impartial. He detects in their interrogation that they're actually out to get Jesus. And it shocks him, I think. He respected these guys. And I think he loses his respect for them at this point. And he loses his patience even with them at this point. And he's surprisingly witty and amazingly courageous. Amazingly courageous. Wouldn't you agree? He's amazingly courageous. It's like, not only has his physical eyes been open, but his spiritual eyes are starting to be open too, and he's starting to see through these men, right? And he moves from saying, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not, to, we know God doesn't hear sinners. If this man weren't from God, he could do nothing, right? He gives this powerful testimony of Jesus being from God before these Pharisees who he knows that if if he crosses their path, it's not going to be good. And he's actually, he is excommunicated for what he said. They said, you're his disciple, and they throw him out of the synagogue. I love what Augustine said about that. He said, such a malediction be upon us and upon our children. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) May the world say the same about us. You're his disciple and throw us out. What a blessing. It's absolutely beautiful that Jesus comes to him and finds him. This man was kicked out of the world and the wisdom and the ways and the the world's fraternity. He was kicked out of it on account of Jesus for Jesus' sake. And we see Jesus Jesus did not forsake him. And Jesus came to him and reveals himself to him as the Messiah. And the man believes. And I think John is showing us an amazing and ironic scene. There's so much irony in the Gospel of John. But in the end of this story, we see that it's a man who's kicked out. First of all, he was a blind man from birth. He was a beggar. He was a nobody. Now we can see. But now he's kicked out of the synagogue. It's this man who was kicked out of the synagogue. He's ostracized. He's the one who comes to know God. He's the one who obtains salvation. It's amazing. So brothers and sisters, this whole chapter, I think, shows us that people back then were not gullible or stupid. Do you you pick up in the neighbors or in the Pharisees or in the parents that these are just stupid people? They're not, right? In fact, I pick up, they're just like me and you same kind of struggles same kind of thought process all the unbelief we encounter in our world is very much the same isn't it this is the skepticism of the supernatural or misunderstanding moses and the law or uh, fear and underneath all of those things all underneath the fear of man underneath that uh, that zeal for god but not according to knowledge underneath that skepticism of god's works Really underneath that, all of that is a hostility and an unwillingness to confront the Lord. And underneath that is, is, a, is a desire to exalt oneself, to keep things safe, to keep things manageable, to keep things where you're in charge, to keep things where you get honor, to keep things where you get glory, to keep your comfort level where you want it to be. I think this is, the, this is what we see in this chapter is the processes of unbelief. But we see the opposite in this man. He didn't have a healthy, he didn't have an unhealthy skepticism of the supernatural. He was healed. He knew he was healed. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see it happen. I'm not doubting it. He didn't have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In fact, he saw through the Pharisees' zeal and he saw they were crooked. He said, you guys are, you guys appear zealous for God, but I'm detecting actually, you don't love truth and you don't love his his word and his ways. So he's looking through that. He's seeing through that. And he didn't have fear either, did he? He's like, you know what, throw me out. You guys are crooked. He was very bold. So we didn't have those things. And I think underneath all of that, what this man had was what Jesus calls an honest heart. A heart that is open and receptive to whatever the truth may be, and ultimately open to who God is and not hostile to the truth of who God is. His ultimate concern is with the truth. In closing this morning, I just want to say one last thing about the judgment that the revelation of Christ affects in our world and continues to affect. And as I said at the beginning of this sermon that Although Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world, the revelation of the truth of the gospel judges humanity in the sense that it polarizes us, it reveals our hearts, it hardens people in darkness, even as it calls forth people to the light. The revelation of the salvation of God separates and divides and reveals who we really are. And if you look with me at verse 39 jesus said for judgment i came into the world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind when the light comes to you or when the light comes to your community or your family when the light comes into this world here's the only two options either those who don't see see or those who see become blind now what does that mean commentators when i was reading the commentaries they're basically unanimous on this and i I think that they're right That when Jesus says that those who don't see uh, may see, what he means is, first of all, of course, everybody's blind without the light of Christ. But those who don't see are the ones who know they don't see, are the ones who realize they're blind, and therefore they're excited about the light. They're open to the light. The light comes and they say, I want light because I'm stumbling around here. I don't know the truth about God and myself and salvation. I don't know what I'm doing or where to go. And to those people who are blind and know it, they receive the light. And when Jesus says, those who see may become blind, he doesn't mean that apart from him, there are people who actually see. But what he means is, those who see are those who think they see. Those who think they have light already, like the Pharisees, who in the next verse say, well, we aren't blind too, are we? They think they see. They're the ones who say, I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. I know what God's about. I know who I am. I know what salvation's all about. And when the light comes, they hate that light. And they're hardened in their darkness and their blindness because they reject it. And this is essentially, I think, what this verse means. If you reject the light, though, you remain in your sin and you forfeit salvation we've been talking a lot about seeing and not seeing and i just want to say again in closing what is it that we see well we see that the whole world is unrighteous that all our righteousness is our filthy rags that we're helpless we're lost we're wicked that no one is going to be right before god by obedience to the law of god but against that truth the light reveals to us the goodness and the grace of god brothers and sisters and friends and that god demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us and god loves wicked and ungodly sinners who hate him and he provided for us and our salvation through the death of his son if we simply believe in him we're forgiven and we're saved and we're made righteous before God. And you won't remain in your sin if you simply believe in Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? You're forgiven and you're blameless. How? Just by believing in Jesus. I wanna remind us all of that again. And that's the glorious good news. So the question for all of us is the same question that Jesus put to that man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's what Jesus asked that man. And please ask yourself that again this morning. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Are you held back from belief through skepticism? Are you held back from belief through a misguided zeal or misunderstanding of the word? Are you held back because of fear? Let's follow the lead of this blind man who was healed, who replied to Jesus, Lord, I believe. And he bowed down and he worshipped him. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love in sending your son to die for wicked and evil sinners like me. And Lord, I just pray that you would Help us to see this on a daily basis and be encouraged by the truth. Help us not to be discouraged by the processes of unbelief that surround us on a daily basis. And Lord, thank you that you never forsake those who put their faith in you. So Lord, just encourage believers today. And Lord, also we pray for our friends and our family members and those in our communities that are that are in unbelief for whatever reason, I just pray that you would break down the walls and open their hearts and guide them into your truth, into your light, Lord. And most of all, Father, glorify your name. May every day your name be hallowed in our lives. And may we praise you because of your salvation. We thank you for this time, for this reminder of who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.